Our text this morning is Isaiah 9, verses 1 through 7. Isaiah 9, 1 through 7. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time he made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and he shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Uh, Father, as we approach this text that was a prophecy from Isaiah long before Christ was ever born. Uh, Lord, I pray that we would see Christ for who He really is, that we would see Him seated at Your right hand, see Him as King of the universe, Father, I pray that you would use this word this morning to cut deep into our hearts and correct idolatry, places we go to find security other than Christ. Lord, reveal those areas to us. Give us and grant us repentance, Father that we might cling to Christ. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, looking back at 2020, the question I want to propose to you is similar to the one I did last week, is this. Where have your eyes been in 2020? Where have the eyes of your heart been looking. Uh, There's a lot to look at. There's a lot to think about. Coronavirus, sickness, death, vaccines, elections, conspiracies, corruption, thousand other things that our eyes and hearts could be captivated with. Last week I made the statement that only fools would anchor their hope in 
Donald Trump or Joe Biden or a Democratic Party or a Republican Party or in any person. Not that those things are unimportant, but they should never be a place where our soul or our hope is anchored. If you can imagine your soul, the core of who you are as a person, having an anchor that steadies you. We looked at last week how foolish it would be for us to throw that anchor in in any human institution or in any person or in any thing. For all things are bound to change except God. And... As we looked back at 2020, we, maybe we thought this was a crazy year and crazy times, but there's been many crazy years in the history of the world. And when Isaiah wrote this prophecy, things were crazy politically in his day. And uh, Dave, if you want to pull up the PowerPoint just to give us a little reminder so at this point in, in time, uh, if you're an Israelite or living in Judah, let's say Jerusalem at that time, some terrible things have already happened. David's kingdom, Israel, has already split into two different nations. You have the northern kingdom called Israel. You have the southern kingdom called Judah. Uh, 10 of the tribes are in the northern kingdom and uh, Judah and Benjamin are in the southern kingdom. The southern kingdom is actually David's line. But already there's been civil war to the point of two different countries uh, exist. And Dave, if you want to flip to the next slide, here's what's going on at, at this time. The superpower is Assyria. Uh, the king of Assyria is Tiglath-Pileser III, and he's gobbling up land like crazy. No one can seem to stop him. And so Syria and Israel have combined together to say, let's fight against Assyria so we're not destroyed. And not only did they say that, but they said, let's go down, uh, King Rezin and King Pekah said, let's go down and defeat King Ahaz and take over Judah. So if you're living in Jerusalem, you're going to say these are crazy times and it looks like our destruction is sure. And as we saw in, in Isaiah 7, where you can read about this political situation, God told Ahaz to trust him, that he was going to care for Judah, to not throw Lot in uh, with Assyria, because here's what King Ahaz says. King Ahaz said, we're going to go make friends with Assyria, and then we'll be able to take on Syria and Israel. And that seems like a good plan from a worldly perspective, but God sends his prophet Isaiah and he tells him not to put his hope in man, but to trust him. 
But as we read last week, King Ahaz went to the king of Assyria and said, I am your son and we will be your servant and decided they were going to put their lot in with Assyria rather than with God. So in chapter 8, we get the prophesied judgment on both Israel and Judah for their lack of trusting in God. And just to highlight a little bit of that, in Isaiah chapter 8, if you have your Bibles, the Lord spoke to me again, Isaiah said, because this people has refused the waters of Shiloh that flowed gently and rejoiced over Rezin, the son of Remaliah, Therefore, behold, the Lord is bringing up against them the waters of the river, mighty and many, the king of Assyria in all his glory. He's saying, because they decided to refuse God, the king of Assyria is going to come and take over both their lands. And then it says, and it will sweep into Judah. So it will go through Israel, which it did, and it will sweep into Judah, and it will overflow and pass on, reaching even to the neck. And its outspread wings will fill the breadth of your land, O Emmanuel. O Emmanuel means God be with us. It's going to come up to your neck, O Judah. Even there's the grace of God. Because God's promise is that there will be a king on David's throne. And so Assyria will come in, and it looks like Assyria are... Judah is going to be destroyed, but it's only to the neck. Almost total destruction. And then it says, be broken, all you peoples, be shattered. Give ear, all you far countries. And then he says, strap on your armor and be shattered. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Take counsel together and it'll come to nothing. Speak a word and it'll not stand for God is with us. Here's what what the prophet's saying. If you want to strap on your armor and do this in your own strength, you're going to be shattered. You want to gather together the smartest political minds and figure out how you're going to survive? You're not going to last. And so my question is, in our own turmoil... Where has your hope been? Who has your hope been anchored in? If you call yourself a Christian, who have you been seeing on a throne? Where have the eyes of your heart been? That's the question. Things were bad. In verse 21 of Isaiah uh, 8, here's what it says. They will come, or they'll pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry. When they are hungry, they will be enraged and speak contemptuously against their king and their God. They'll turn their faces upward in anger towards God. They will look to the earth, behold distress and darkness, gloom of anguish, and they'll be thrust into thick darkness. So that's a hard word from the prophet saying, because of your lack of faith, it's going to be darkness and it's going to be anguish. 
But in the midst of all that darkness in chapter 8, I want to point you to verse 17. The prophet says, I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob, that's Judah, and I will hope in him. So Isaiah says, I'm not living in denial. Things are really bad. Things are really, really bad. He's not just putting his head in the sand. He sees God is hiding his face. But without denying the circumstances, he says, I will wait for the Lord and I will hope in him. Alec Motyer says this, and this is so key. The eye of faith looks at all this, but affirms that real though it is, it is not the real reality. (laughs) So as real as the tumult is, it's not the real reality though. As always, he writes, the people of God must decide what reading of their experiences they'll live by. Are they to look at the darkness and the hopelessness and the dream shattered and conclude that God has forgotten them? So that's one way to read difficult circumstances. That's one way to read 2020. I only see darkness. I see shattered dreams. I see difficult circumstances. Or... Are they to recall his past mercies and to remember his present promises and to make great affirmations of faith? He writes, Isaiah insists here that hope is a present reality, part of the constitution of the now. The darkness is true, but it is not the whole truth and certainly not the fundamental truth. So as Christians... What have we seen as the true, true reality? Can we say with Isaiah that though times are difficult, my hope is in God? And so as chapter 8 ends really depressing, really depressing, and they look to the earth, but behold distress and darkness, gloom and anguish, like so often with the Old Testament prophets to Israel, as it gets so dark, it seems unbearable. There's a flicker of promise because God will always keep His promises to His people. And that's what we see as we turn to chapter 9 and we look at our text today. And before we read that, There's a song called Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing written by Robert Robinson in 1757. And some things never change, but he writes this verse, Let thy goodness, God's goodness, like a fetter bind my wandering heart to thee. Though prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart. Oh, take and seal it, seal it for thy courts above. Those words grab 
the singer because we can all relate to a wandering heart. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. It's really easy looking back at this year and seeing all the times our hearts wandered to earthly solutions and earthly hopes and spend more time thinking and talking about those things than remembering who we are. I can relate to that, and I'm sure you can relate to that as well. The writer of Hebrews in, in, in Hebrews 3.12 says this, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. He's writing to believers. He says, take care, lest there be an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to slowly walk away from the living God. And then his solution is this, but exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. The reason why Christians wander so far away with their eyes rather than having them on Christ is we so often will click the news on and let that be the thing that speaks to us rather than other Christians encouraging us in the truthfulness of reality in Christ. (laughs) The solution of the writer of Hebrews is Christian fellowship, speaking the truth to each other in the midst of dark times. So let's see the glimmer of hope that begins to arise in chapter 9. But there will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. He just said darkness, distress, and anguish. But now there will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea and the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee, of the nations. Now, Naphtali Naphtali and Zebulun are two of the tribes of Israel that are located right by the Sea of Galilee. And what he said is in former times, they, they, uh, the people of Israel have been held in contempt by God for their rebellion to God, but that will change. Can you... Click the next one. Yep, right here. So if you, you can see Naphtali and Zebulun up by the Sea of Galilee. And so this is a prophecy saying, in former times, it was judgment on you. But there's going to be a time where that's going to stop. It's not going to be that way anymore. And then he says this really controversial thing. He calls it, in verse 15, Galilee of the Gentiles, Galilee of the Gentiles. These are two Jewish tribes. How can he call it Galilee of the Gentiles, the very enemies 
of the Jews. So somehow something's going to happen up here that is going to be a blessing not only to the Jews, but also to the nations, to the Gentiles. The land of Zebulun, verse 15, the land of Naphtali, the way of the Sea of Galilee, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the peoples dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region in the shadow of death, on them light has dawned. From that time, Jesus... Oh, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm in uh, Matthew uh, chapter 4. Is it up on the screen there? Yeah. So when Jesus uh, grabs this prophecy and he points to himself in it, in Matthew chapter 4, he says, now when he heard that John had been arrested and, and he withdrew into Galilee and leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet of Isaiah might be fulfilled, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the peoples dwelling in darkness have seen a great light, and for those dwelling in the region a shadow of death, on them light is dawned. And then it says, from that time Jesus began to preach, saying, repent, therefore the kingdom of heaven is at hand, which is an amazing statement Jesus is saying, I am the light that is in this region that shines into the darkness. And the way you respond to the light is repentance. He says, repent. The light being shown is the preaching of Christ. And the preaching of Christ reveals to mankind that they're sinful and there is no hope outside of the grace of God on their behalf. And the way you respond, the way you get in on the light is by trusting in it by faith. And the light is Christ. He's the fulfillment of this prophecy. In John 8, 12, uh, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Earlier in John, in John 1, he says he's the light of men. All life flows from Christ. And then in John 9, 5, as long as I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. And my first question and the first note is are the first charges don't forget the light and fail to rejoice you see we christ is come when isaiah wrote this he's saying a light's gonna shine the light is shown and then we can sit here in 2020 as though we lack hope and as though we're sitting in darkness we can shield ourselves from the light. Have you ever pulled the curtains in your basement and watched a movie at 2 o'clock in the afternoon and you forget that it's even light outside? You walk upstairs and it's like, whoa, there's light here. Or been driving with sunglasses on and it's starting to get dark and it's kind of hard to see. And then you realize you take your sunglasses off. It's like, oh, that's better. 
as Christians, we can hold the shield up to the light by anchoring our hopes somewhere else so that we almost forget the lights even there. And you know you're doing it when anxiety rises in your heart, when grumbling and bitterness and anger rises up, we know that our eyes have been anchoring the hope of our soul in places other than Christ. And then don't forget the victory we have in Christ. Look at verse 3. You've multiplied the nation. (laughs) Remember when God changed Abram's name to Abraham? He says, for I've made you the father of a multitude of nations. You say, ha, he could father one nation. How could he father a multitude of nations? Well, in Jesus Christ, the Gentiles also have salvation offered to them and forgiveness. So in Christ, Christ, the nation multiplies and grows in John 10:16 he says and i have other sheep that are not of this fold i must bring them also and they will listen to my voice so there will be one flock and one shepherd in christ the fold grows and the sheep hear his voice and they come to me So we preach the gospel to all the nations and those who hear with ears to hear come to him and are saved. And we forget if if our glasses are only as big as the United States of America, gloom and darkness and failure and tumult. Things are going downhill, right? But if you look at the kingdom of God and you look how it's spreading through China and Iraq and to places it's never been and people who've never heard, we may become more joyous of heart. We may see the kingdom of God growing. It starts like a mustard seed, but grows into a tree. You've multiplied the nation, verse 3. You've increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with the joy of the harvest. The harvest represents uh, plenty and provision as they are glad when they divide the spoil. Dividing the spoil is the joy of victory so that in Christ, All that we need is provided and there's victory over our enemies. And then in verse 4, for the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder and the rod of his oppressor you have broken as in the day of Midian, so two things would be coming to the Jewish mind. The rod of his oppressor, they'd be thinking of the Exodus, their slavery, this tough burden that was on them. God broke that slavery by taking them out of Egypt, 
but there was a slavery that followed them out of Egypt, and it was the slavery to sin. But there's going to be a day where that greater slavery will be broken. That burden will be gone. Have you ever read The Pilgrim's Progress? One of the the greatest books ever written? Because it's full of Scripture. And Christian, the main character, is walking around at the beginning with this huge burden on his back and he doesn't know how to get rid of it. The burden represents sin and the impending judgment for that sin. And finally, he comes to the point of the cross and when he gets to the cross, all of a sudden this huge burden falls off his shoulders and rolls into a tomb. Representing Christ taking your sin to the cross and dying the death for your sin that you deserve so that that slavery can be broken to it. And this prophecy is pointing us forward to that sort of hope. And then he says he's going to break it as on the day of Midian. This is pointing to Gideon and how Gideon brought his army down to only 300 and they had trumpets in their hands. And the Midianites were like locusts, meaning they were everywhere. Their camels were so many you couldn't count them, the scripture says. And as Gideon and his 300-man army blew their trumpets, God threw them into confusion, and the Midianites started fleeing and destroying themselves. Meaning that This hope is going to be a sovereign work of God. Just like in the day of Midian or or Gideon. You wouldn't say, boy, Gideon and those those soldiers, man, they were were like SEAL Team 6 with their skill and how... No, the whole point was God did it. This is how the victory is going to be won. God's going to work the victory. No sinner can pull himself up by his own bootstraps and take care of his problem. And his problem is we're all going to stand before a holy God who's righteous and just. He's going to judge sin. And the question as you're standing in that line is what hope do I have to face him? The only hope you have is this, is if someone comes up to your spot in line and says, hey, give me your name tag. I've lived a perfect life. I'm going to be found not guilty. Let me stand in your place. Let me go before the judge for you. That's what Christ did for us. And so we're pointed towards the victory we have And then let's not forget the type of king that we have. Who's running the government of the Christian? Who's really in control? What's he like? You know, you could list Joe Biden's attributes that seem good to people. You could list Donald Trump's attributes that seem good to people. But what about the king? that Isaiah is talking about. What's he like? Look at verse 6. For to us a child is born. This is a turning point. Because what he said is, gloom is going to turn to glory, and darkness is going to turn to light, 
And as you're reading, you're saying, well, how's that going to come about? Well, verse 6 tells us, for to us a child is born. See, this is the turning point. It's all going to happen because a child is born. He's going to be a human being. Really. He's going to be born. To us, a son is given. Well, that's different. He's going to be called the son of God. He's given from God. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. So he's going to be really human, but he's going to be really God so that God gives him. So all the hope in this dark world comes from a child that is born and that is given from God. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. See, politics in and of itself aren't bad. In fact, God wants us looking for a king and a ruler. And this one is going to have the government upon his shoulder. What's he like? What's this child like that's going to be given this son? His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. Now don't think therapy. Don't think a therapy session here. He's not a wonderful therapist. The idea here is his counsel is supernatural. He's a, it's a supernatural counsel. A counsel guides a person in what he does. Isaiah 28, 29 gives us the idea in the context of Isaiah's prophecy. Look at what he says. This also comes from the Lord of hosts. He is wonderful in counsel and excellent in wisdom. So this child is wise. He's always going to do what's right. He's always going to know what to do. No one knows better than him. That's the point. Ephesians 1.11 says this, In him we've obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. God does everything according to his plan and his wisdom. I got great help in connecting these through uh, John Piper's look at the book on, on Isaiah 9. Um, or on Isaiah uh, yeah, chapter 9. He has four sessions on it. If you want to dive deeper into it, uh, I recommend it to you. But it was so helpful how Piper helped, un, helped me understand what it means he's wonderful in counsel. He's wonderful in wisdom. Or Romans 11.33, Oh, the depth and riches and wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and inscrutable His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been His counselor? You see, God doesn't go to get counsel from anyone else. He is the wonderful counselor. He knows what is right. 
And God guides his people with that counsel. Psalm 32, 8. I will instruct you and teach you in the way that you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Psalm 25, 8. Good and upright is the Lord, therefore he instructs sinners in the way. God gives that counsel to us. And so often we take our eyes off him because we won't got to know what happened today. We got, what's more important is just this, you know, what's happening with these earthly rulers and so often as Christians, we forget to have our eyes on the one whose sovereign plan is playing out just as God had planned. Even the difficult years are God's years. 2020, God is on his throne. So he's a wonderful counselor. And then it says, mighty God. This child is going to be God himself. Isaiah 10, 21 says, a remnant will return, a remnant of Jacob to the mighty God. Same phrase. So this child is going to be divine. John 1, 1 says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was with God in the, the beginning. Or he was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. Without him was not anything made that was made. And then in verse 14, it says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. So this word that created the entire world, Genesis 1, 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. John says, in that same beginning was the word. And the word was with God and the word was God. And you're seeing the Trinity here. You're seeing God the Father and God the Son. And God the Son created everything. And now in verse 14, in John 1.14, he takes on flesh. He becomes a human being. Which is exactly the sort of Savior you and I need. Because our sin is against an eternal God. And the only punishment for a sin against the eternal God is eternal punishment. And the only one that can take your place is not just a perfect man. But you need an eternal God-man that has the same worth of God. When He takes the punishment for your sins, you and I can be forgiven. And so we see that this child is mighty God. And then this maybe surprising statement, everlasting Father. We know this is pointing to Jesus and He's called everlasting Father. Father, and Piper here is really helpful in guiding us to Isaiah 53.10. Maybe the most popular chapter in the book of Isaiah. It says, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. So as Jesus takes on the sins of the world, that's what we see earlier in Isaiah 53. It was God's will to crush him for our sins. Because God can't shuffle sins under the rug. He has to punish them because he's a righteous judge. But it was the will of the Lord to crush him. Now get this. And to put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The, the Lord shall prosper his hand. So when Jesus dies for sinners, in a sense, 
He's the father of those sinners. He offspring comes from his death. And in that way, Christ is called the everlasting father, which means the one who is on the throne is all wise. He's all powerful. He's mighty God. And he's all caring. He's a loving father. You know, what do you want to see in your political candidates? You want them, you want them to be wise. You want them to be a good husband and a good dad. You want them to be fatherly. If they're going to care for the nation, and yet everyone falls short, but this child does not. He's the everlasting father And finally, he's the prince of peace. That's what he's like. This word peace, if you're here for the Christmas Eve service, we talked about this. Uh, You know, this idea of shalom. It's a rich word that means completeness, soundness, welfare, peace. Everyone in the world wants shalom, wants completeness. Everyone in the world with their eyes off of Christ are trying to find peace in something. They'll seek it in the defeat of their enemies, in politics, in revenge, in money, in career, in job, in in retirement, in fame, in power. They'll seek it in a person, in family, in vacations, in change of circumstances or scenery in hobby or sport or health or body image, in food or drink or drugs or sex, everyone is looking for shalom. But this child is the prince of peace. And you can save yourself running down a lot of dead-end roads by anchoring your soul in Him. If you have your Bibles, turn to Isaiah 53. Maybe the most important peace. You know who we don't have peace with? As born sinful? God. In fact, the Bible says anyone who doesn't have the Son, the wrath of God remains on him. And it's one thing to have a human enemy, but it's another thing to have a divine enemy when justice demands eternal punishment. And yet in Isaiah 53, this king is not only shown as this mighty ruler, but he rules through suffering. And here's what we see. 700 years before Christ was born, this is written, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. And I'm going to skip to verse 6. We'll come back to verse 5. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So this child, God is going to put our sins on him. And then in verse 5 says this, But he was pierced for our transgressions. He had no sin, but he was nailed to that cross for our sins. And he was crushed for our iniquities. 
and upon him was the chastisement that brought us what? Peace. Shalom. When Jesus is nailed to the cross and the sinner trusts in Christ, God says, peace between me and the sinner. No more sin. No more judgment. There is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He's the prince of peace. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. With his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray and turned everyone to his own way. We've all chosen peace in another way. Ephesians 2.13 But now Christ Jesus, you, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. You Gentiles who had nothing to do with God. You Jews whose sinful hearts have separated you from God. In the blood of Jesus Christ, you're once far off, but now you've been brought near. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and broken down in his flesh the dividing wall in hostility by abolishing the law and the commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross. So here's in Christ, here's what happens. A Jew and a Gentile can become friends, can become a part of the family. The Prince of Peace brings peace between people and he reconciles both those people to God. Because God had hostility towards sinners. But when the Prince of Peace is born into this world and takes on flesh and goes to the cross, a light shines in to a dark world and hope floods the hearts of those who have eyes to see the light. John fourteen twenty six. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he'll teach you all these things and bring to your remembrance all that I've said to you. Peace I leave with you, and my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. If you know my peace, you don't. it's not like the peace a king gets that says, I'll protect you for a while. That won't last very long. That's not how God gives peace. God gives peace in such a way where he says, Quit worrying. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Don't be afraid anymore. And when we're afraid and we're anxious and we're thinking, has God forgotten us and is God not good anymore in light of our circumstances? We failed to see the child that is born unto us to give us hope. All right, we got to go really fast. Just burn through the rest of this. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Here's what that means. There won't be a rebel. There won't be a rebel army in the new heavens and new earth. Every enemy will be conquered. The increase and in fruitfulness of the new heavens and new earth will never end. 
and on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Last couple points in rapid fire. Don't forget the characteristics of Christ's kingdom. It's perfect. No enemy can stand against it. It's going to increase forever. Don't forget God's love for David. This is so awesome to see. In Isaiah 55, towards the end of Isaiah's prophecy, here's what he says. And let this be Christ's call to you this morning. Come, everyone who thirsts. Come to the waters. He who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread? And labor for that which does not satisfy. Meaning, why do you go try to anchor your life in some place where it can never satisfy you? You're always going to be thirsty again. If you're thirsty, come, Christ says. And then it says, listen diligently to me and eat what is good. Delight yourself in rich food. Incline your ear. Come to me. Hear that your soul may live and I'll make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast sure love for David. <laughs> Which is an amazing promise. He says, if you come, if you come to me to be filled, the love I had for King David is my love for you. The same steadfast love that the Lord had for King David is the same love that God has for everyone that anchors their hope in the true king. Behold, I made him a witness to the people and a leader among the commanders of the peoples. Behold, you shall call a nation to you that did not know and a nation that did not know you shall run to you because of the, of the Lord your God and of the Holy One of Israel for he has glorified you. Verse 6 says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. What does that mean? That means you could die tonight and if you die outside of Christ, if you die outside of anchoring your hope in Christ, you will stand before God and you will willingly stand before him in your own sin. If you stiff arm Christ, if you stiff arm the only hope for your salvation, there's no second chances after you die. So God through this scripture is calling sinners, seek me while I may be found. Don't think you have next week. You're not even promised your next breath. Will you have him? Will you seek him? Do you believe that he's the only hope in this dark world? Are you going to chase one dead end highway after another? Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he's near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the righteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. And then finally, don't forget God's zeal to bring about the promises of his kingdom. Look at what he says at the end of verse 7. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. That word zeal could mean jealousy. 
How sure is this Christ to anchor your hope in? Well, when God is jealous to do something, you think it's going to get done? When the zeal of the Lord says, it's a guarantee, I'm going to get it done. If his son took on flesh, came to this earth, died on the cross, rose again, do you really think the promises are going to fail now? They're not. So anchor your hope in the true king, not man's king. Do not be afraid. The sure, steadfast love of David is the love he has for those who will come to him to find life. Now, maybe you've believed yourself to be a believer for a long time because you knew in your head that Jesus is the Son of God. But you see, we're not saved by getting right test answers right when it comes to Christianity. We're saved by faith, and what faith means is it means you anchor your hope in Him. Which means when you chase a dead-end highway, you repent, you see the foolishness of it. You come to Christ for forgiveness and say, Oh Lord, I'm prone to wander. Seal my heart to the only true hope there is. My prayer is, is that if you've never anchored your heart in Christ, you would do it today. And if you have, and you've been shielding your eyes from the light, you've been looking too much at earthly kings, I pray that your soul will be settled in Christ. Father, thank you for the gospel. Thank you for this child that brought light into a dark world. It is, he is our only hope. And even in the midst of despair, we can, like Isaiah said, put our hope in your present promises, for they are the true reality. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen.